Hello, you lover of architecture and design. Welcome to Prairie Design Lab, a new podcast coming to you from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. I'm Terry McLeod. Today, I'm going to introduce you to a rising star in architecture and design. He's named Tom Fougere, and he's from Winnipeg. Tom Fougere graduated in 2009 from the University of Manitoba's Faculty of Architecture. He was just 21. By the time he was 23, he had risen to be the creative director of EQ3 Worldwide. It currently has 14 company stores in Canada and five in the United States, including New York City, Chicago, San Francisco, and Norwalk, Connecticut. The Winnipeg Free Press recently reported that Cadillac Fairview, the owner of Polo Park Shopping Centre, says EQ3 will be taking over 44,000 square feet of the former Sears department store at the south end of the mall. After nine years with EQ3, supervising its dramatic growth, Tom Fougere left in early 2020 to pursue new challenges in numerous parts of the country and around the world. I got together with him last week and began by asking about his initial path into architecture and design. It seemed like it was a fairly direct path for me in there. I, I was pretty sure of what I wanted uh, to do. and where my interests were from when I was in high school. Uh, however, during my time in architecture school, I learned that my interests were laid elsewhere outside of the architecture world. And I was more interested in the more product and furniture scale, so much so that a lot of my projects at the time ended up being uh, very small <laughs> and resulted in, uh, you know, seating within a space and... Uh, you know, I, I was routinely kind of pushed to go a bit bigger because I was studying architecture. So it's been a bit of a, an experimentation and push and pull on a variety of scales, I think, since studying architecture. So when you finished architecture school, where did you go next? Uh, I worked for a, a year uh, at a, an ad agency. I, I was excited by the speed of graphic design and I had a lot of interest in it and photography and I guess that year out of architecture uh, school, kind of trying to figure out, you know, what am I actually interested in? What am I doing? Um, I, I spent that time trying to figure that out. So I, um, I really got into, you know, medium format photography. I was working at an ad agency. I was also funding um, my own self-initiated projects that were mostly in uh, the scale of furniture and exhibiting those. Um, the first one was at IDS in Toronto. And so that first year outside of school, I was really uh, spent the time experimenting. And when did you connect with EQ3? It was almost a year to the day being hired at the ad agency that I kind of decided it was time to move on. And uh, I had uh, some friends at EQ3, and I think I always held that company in high regard and uh, was curious about it. But um, I knew bits about it, and but not the whole picture. So I, you know, the fact that a company like that was based in Winnipeg and the prairies just seemed like a very interesting outlier to a lot of the companies I was interested in looking at at the time. So I applied for a graphic design position and um, kind of worked in the capacity of just general designer for about a year before becoming the creative director there. EQ3 in your time there expanded quite significantly. Yeah, when I uh, started 
started, it was actually right after the um, economic uh, collapse of the like 2009, 2010 yeah. time. And uh, I think the business was fairly affected at that time. So when I came on, which was after that period, it was a period of growth and renewal for the company itself. I initiated a kind of a rebranding immediately within a year of starting there. And it was a bit slow, that kind of growth and renewal and kind of built up uh, exponentially through the years uh, since then. And what were the underlying principles of your rebranding? What were you trying to tell us as buyers about what EQ3 was? It's a tricky question to answer uh, concisely and in an interesting way for the the listeners. But I guess the one... um, North Star that I tried to keep in mind was making uh, modern furniture approachable to the everyday consumer. That was the kind of North Star for all points of the um, design and visual aspects of the brand. So that would filter into photography, how we present the furniture. You know, I shifted all of our photography into uh, Winnipeg homes. They were often shot overseas in, in, you know, quite large extravagant houses that, you know, I think a lot of people associate with modern furniture. I was really influenced at the time by uh, this Spanish magazine that was fairly new at the time called Apartamento. Um, still a favorite of mine. And it was kind of a light bulb that went off in my head when I saw that where they were, it was a design interior magazine. And uh, the first issue on the cover was kind of just like a messy pile of magazines beside a, a sofa. And it was really exhibiting how I think clutter is a part of our lives and how, like, how do we really live in our homes? And so that kind of notion is really what I think led to a lot of the um, rebranding efforts and decision-making for the company, you know, going on from 2010 to uh, when I left uh, last year. So I'd say all in all, even right down to extort experience, um, making modern furniture approachable to the average Canadian and North American consumer. In what way did your aesthetic influence the product lines of EQ3? I think the late 2010s, I mean, all of the 2010s, there was a lot of modern furniture that was, you know, very kind of high gloss and shiny. (laughs) There's, you know, smoke mirrors or smoke glass, high gloss white coffee tables. And a lot of that material use really, it's, it's most pristine when you purchase it. And then as soon as you kind of like set a cup down or you get a scratch, it it kind of just falls apart and it ages really poorly. In continuing kind of with that ideology, the shift to using raw, honest materials in the products that I would argue look their worst when you buy them and their best when you use them and develop this you know patina and this history of use, that's really what excited me then and still is something that I am... Uh, you know, very excited about and interested in, in um, exploring further. That was by far the biggest shift at EQ3 at that time for the product line itself. What do you mean by raw, honest materials? If we just think of like a, a solid wood dining table, a rift cut oak table with maybe just a very light finish on it just to seal it so it doesn't bend and warp a little bit too much through the seasons, but allows for 
you know, if you put a cup down, maybe it will result in a ring, but it won't tarnish the table. Whereas if you have like a heavy lacquered table, if you set your keys down on it wrong, there's, you know, there's a little scrape on there and it's there forever and you can't fix it. I'm speaking to you right now in front of one of these tables. And, you know, there's even like where you're sitting often or where you have friends sitting often, the oils from their hands or where they're leaning on it, it, it kind of darkens the table a little bit. And it, it just allows for an addition of character that I think is um, a positive quality for using furniture in your day-to-day life. You also enlarged product lines into beautiful, smaller objects. As you talked earlier on about your interest in architecture school in smaller objects, what kinds of things are we talking about in terms of EQ3? In 2010, early on, I think EQ3 was really known for its upholstery, all made in Winnipeg. It's kind of outstanding quality, and it's only improved since then. But we did end up going into smaller pieces as well. And I think the idea was that it was a lifestyle brand. We could offer a little something for everybody, no matter what what they were looking for, but retained that rigor and quality throughout. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, experimentation with different types of materials. Uh, One uh, in the last few years while I was there, that was really exciting, was working with uh, different types of, of stones and stone workers and uh, creating a line of um, desktop accessories and candle holders. Just beautiful objects for the home that you'll never throw away, you'll keep forever. They'll always have kind of room in even future generations of homes. Some of those, as I was looking at some of the material on your website, are made from local limestone, tindlestone. Those uh, those products aren't EQ3 products. Those would be projects that I've done uh, in my own studio. So okay. while I was at EQ3, I was operating my own design studio adjacent to my creative director work. I, you know, a lot of it I use as a bit of a, an outlet for projects and experimentation that didn't really have a home in the kind of corporate EQ3 side. So what you're talking about, the Tindallstone, that's uh, something that I became very excited about um, early on and I'm still working with to this day, actually. Yeah. Do you work with the quarry at Garson, Manitoba to get your Tindallstone? Oh, yeah, yeah. They know me too well. Yeah. I'm the guy that sends them all the weird projects that they have to kind of figure out how to, <laughs> how to make. They're, they're probably kind of annoyed and, and happy working with me but yeah no i i work very closely with them and it's it's been a very uh, it's been an excellent kind of partnership what is it about that limestone that tindall stone that appeals to you so much oh so much i mean back when i did my first project which was the the tindall table which is just a coffee table a beautiful thing. thank you that was in 2011 and you know at the time i uh, i was you know traveling quite a bit for my work at eq3 to you know, design fairs all over the world. And I, I kind of found that there was a lot of homogenous work being done uh, all across the world. You could really see the same thing in any design shop anywhere in the world. I, I was a little bit disheartened by that realization that like, I, I was a, kind of expecting there to be more and there and there is more. And, you know, I'm talking in very generally, but I always kind of had this attitude that there'd be something more exotic and better elsewhere outside of the prairies, designer, artist, you kind of think like New York has the best stuff or Milan has the most amazing designers, artists, materials working. You know, after traveling, I, I 
did receive a bit of a perspective on we're actually in the prairies and living amongst something that's very exotic and untapped. Tindallstone is just, it's, it's everywhere. It surrounds us. My elementary school in Regina was, you know, clad in Tindallstone and I do fossil rubbings at recess with it. And, you know, most of my apartments and my my current condo building is clad in, in Tindallstone. And I think we know it as, as a building cladding, uh, material, but you know, I saw this material as something that was kind of untapped and couldn't be used as you know an interesting material to be used in the home. This is an original exotic stone that's only quarried in Manitoba, and it's just this wild, bizarre limestone. So I became really fascinated with it, and um, you know, the coffee table was the first product that I had done out of it and really it was just it just looks like a floating monolith of stone and the steel legs are meant to kind of just disappear it was really meant to just showcase the stone itself since then i've i've done a, a number of other projects uh in Tindallstone with very similar qualities very um kind of understated forms that really put the material to the foreground. So another one I think you're um, alluding to is the uh, Tyndall Vessel Collection, which is a series of 12 vessels that kind of descend in height. And the ascension and descension in height kind of allude to different uses. So the smallest one maybe could be used as a candle holder, whereas the tallest one could house a beautiful bouquet of flowers. And then there's, you know, 10 different varieties in between the two. I'm not finished with Tindallstone, but uh, it's definitely been fascination for as long as I've been designing. The fabrication of the materials that you use, how much of that is actually done in Winnipeg? I'll start with EQ3. So all, all the upholstery is made in Winnipeg. We have our head office in North Kildonan and it's connected to an upholstery shop and every sofa that's sold comes through Winnipeg. For the work that I was doing, I, I like to mock things up physically here. Um, I kind of, I have a bit of a distrust with computer modeling. You know, I, I really like to see things even if they're just in cardboard uh, for scale. So that would be, that's a big part of my working methodology. And at EQ3, there's a lot of partners overseas where uh, there's, you know, a full product development team that takes care of correspondence between designers and overseas manufacturers. That's a pretty, uh, you know, well-oiled machine that they have going on there. For my own studio work, I think, you know, I really see my part as a designer as just like one part of the uh, overall formula of bringing a product to life. A lot of the products that I'm, I'm making from my own studio are, are in partnership with, you know, other brands. I I work with a, a showroom in Toronto called Mielk often, and I've been pretty close with them over the past few years, uh, creating a variety of pieces from fire tools to, you know, tambour uh, storage hutches. And those are all made in Toronto. And um I work closely with, you know, the uh, craftspeople working in brass and the woodworkers to uh, bring these products to life. Now, you won uh, a number of awards from folks at 
Gulp their 10th anniversary celebration. What were they so pleased with in terms of your work? That was in January of this year. It was during uh, the Interior Design Show in Toronto, which is Toronto's Design Week. Milk was celebrating their 10-year anniversary of having their showroom open. I'd been really close friends with the owners uh, going back before they had a showroom. Over the years, we've made a lot of, we've done some really fantastic collaborations together, some fire tools that I'm very proud of. And for this uh, exhibition, I think I did five new products for the opening. And yeah, they were all really well received and the public seemed to be pretty excited by it. And and I was too. So one of them was a, a day bed. Another were two different sizes of um, kind of tambour, which is like kind of like, if you think of like a roll top desk, it's kind of like one of those, but turned on its side and used as a, a storage unit. So I had two different sizes of that and oak and walnut. Also presented um, an addition to the fire tool collection and a, a log holder out of solid brass as well. I saw photos of that. It was spectacular. You also won Furniture Designer of the Year from Western Living this year. Yeah, I did. What did they like about your work? <laughs> from what I was told, they, they kind of latched on to... Um, some of those thoughts I had shared on, on materiality and paying close attention to materials and, and how they're used in, in my pieces. A lot of my work is, is fairly understated and uh, people might call it minimal. And so I, I guess the sensitivity around that. You've exhibited widely across North America and in Europe, Milan and Stockholm and New York City. You know, yeah. speaking of uh, European exposure, in what way has the European sensibility or even, say, the Japanese sensibility affected your design principles? I'm massively influenced by um, a lot of designers from Scandinavia and Japan. I, I mean, arguably, the, the biggest influence um, for me over the past few years has been Suetsu Yanagi's book, The Unknown Craftsman. And a lot of kind of, you know, what we're talking about in terms of sensitivity to materials and finding kind of a poetic quality and in form. Obviously, there's so many Scandinavian Japanese designers that I look up to and in love with their work. You know, I, I also really try to spend a lot of time finding inspiration outside of the design world. My approach resembles their approach in terms of design and, and materiality. I went to a show at the EQ3 store in Winnipeg a number of years ago where the grandson of a couple of leading American designers came to Winnipeg to talk about his family's contribution to design. Yeah, that was Eames Demetrios. And that was very exciting. Yeah, yeah. He's a, yeah, he's, he's a very interesting guy, which with his connection to Charles and Ray Eames, I mean, those two are arguably what really got me interested in, in furniture design while I was in architecture school. The wealth of like knowledge and understanding uh, that he has to share is, is very exciting. The EQ3 store in New York City, in Chelsea. Who did the architecture for that store? Is that you? Yeah, I designed the, uh, the store. It's my first kind of, you know, full built uh, building design. Yeah. <laughs> it was my final work for EQ3. It, it was actually about three and a half years in the making. It was a, definitely an experience <laughs> like no other. <laughs> it is a stunningly luminous, transparent building that from the exterior invites you into the interior so readily and gives that sense of serenity and calm and simplicity. That was definitely the approach. 
the location is in Midtown uh, Chelsea area of, of New York. And, you know, it's a bit of an older, um, I'd say almost like a bit more drab part of, of uh, Manhattan where there's a lot of, you know, heavy brick buildings. And when I visited, uh, my thought was, you know, contrasting the context would be the best way to stand out on the block. So the idea was, yeah, to create essentially a jewel box on this corner lot and just pull people in off the street. Yeah, I'm glad uh, that was somewhat achieved, yeah. Have you visited it? It sounds like you've... Uh... No, I just studied it really carefully. Okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> because I was really intrigued by it, and I thought this has, although we never met, it has this sense of your imprint on the whole thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the goal was really to almost create something banal so it's hyper-legible and understandable. And it's really just, you know, a square grid of glass. And it's really meant to just frame the inside and the products in there and just allow for that transparency. And yeah, so I guess, you know, there's a minimal aspect to it. Yeah, it was, it was just um, meant to be kind of a legible, welcoming experience overall. You, from the time you were very young, seemed to have a sense of what you wanted to do in terms of architecture. For younger people, and particularly architecture students who are listening to us, what's your message to them about what they should do with their interests? Because your range of interests seems to be so great. Yeah, yeah. I've been lucky to be working in the capacity that I have been working from a very young age. You know, I, being creative director at 23 is, I don't understand how I did it. And it is a bit extreme. And it does seem like I knew exactly what I've, like, I know what I'm doing and I'm fully formed, but it's definitely not the case. I think I, at the time, and I still do have this kind of endless pursuit. And I think being curious and working through it is the best thing that you can do to find out what that thing is for yourself. There's never been a direct path, at least in my mind, to where I've ended up, but you know, the curiosity and uh, the work that I've done and the, the strange paths that I've led down have all amounted to something in the work that I've done. So I guess the best advice I could have is just be and remain curious about your surroundings. What was your family background in Regina? Well, my dad is very involved in politics. He was on city council for uh, many years in Regina, and he was the mayor for um, two terms. And uh, my mom was just, you know, the greatest mom and was very kind of um, helpful in, you know, pushing us to kind of explore these kind of pursuits. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm from Regina. I, I grew up in Regina. I was born in Winnipeg, but I always kind of was looking elsewhere while I was there. I was engaged and I didn't know where to place my, my interests and efforts. What tilted you toward architecture? I'm not exactly sure. I, like when I think back, um, you know, I was really dead set on it when I was in, in high school. I, you know, I, I taught myself all the programs that I you know, thought I would need in architecture. I did a lot of research, and but there was something that clicked in me, I guess, when I was in grade 11. Um, I, you know, I was really drawn to filmmaking and, and photography at the same time. And, you know, still, those two things are still um, huge 
paths of interest for me, but um, yeah, go, going towards architecture, I'm, I'm not, I don't know. I don't know if I have an answer. I can't, can't recall. I don't recall a life before pursuing it. <laughs> so what is next in your path? Well, it's actually, it's, it's a bit of an exciting time, despite, um, you know, the pandemic that we're all, uh, you know, dealing with right now. I was actually uh, in the midst of planning a move to Montreal uh, in the fall, but I've pushed that now to the spring, um, hoping that, you know, things look a little bit better by that time. I'm really excited about what um, that has in store. I've been working with a lot of furniture companies, uh, both within Canada and internationally, on some new projects that um, will likely be launched a year or two years from now. But, you know, the work is happening now, which is really exciting. And uh, I, I'm hoping to kind of continue that stream of work for sure. And whatever self-initiated projects present themselves along the way. I'm also opening a, an architecture and interior arm. I guess a totally new office, actually, with a friend of mine in Montreal as well. Yeah, we're very excited about that. And we have three uh, clients in the Prince Edward County and Georgian Bay area of Ontario and already started and exciting. What will you be calling that firm? <laughs> I, we've spent the summer trying to come up with a name and we are still empty handed. So <laughs> if you have a suggestion, I'd, I'd love to hear it, but uh, it's unnamed right now. <laughs> What have I not asked that you were interested in telling me about? This has been a great conversation. Um, I, like, I really don't love talking about myself that much. So can I ask you a question, though? Yeah, go ahead. Why and how did you start this uh, podcast focused on design in the Canadian prairies? Well, because when I was 22, I had intended to go to architecture school. I was. I grew up in Charlottetown. I was at UPEI. Mm. I was uh, going to. It would have been the architecture school at NASCAD. I was. I think it's its name now. The Technical University of Nova Scotia at UPEI. I had to take two years of uh, pre-engineering. In my second year, I panicked because I went into a strength and materials class and an advanced calculus class, and I thought. I'm not ready for this. This is way too complicated. I can't, I don't get this. And so I uh, went off and pursued a whole bunch of other things. I became an actor. I worked in experimental TV. I lived in the Arctic for a while. And then eventually I ended up working for CBC. Yeah. Uh, I worked in indigenous broadcasting in a couple of different places. But I had always been interested in architecture. And then when the kids came along, we built stuff. We yeah. built uh, ice furniture. We built Quincy's in, you know, you know, Winnipeg, right? Oh, Wonderful yeah. place to make outdoor ice. I would color the uh, our milk cartons full of water with Kool-Aid to make colored blocks of ice for the windows in the Quincy's. And whenever we traveled, we always went to the most spectacular architecture that we could find. And luckily for me, Finn decided to pursue architecture. He studied at University of Detroit Mercy in their visual arts and the built environment program. He introduced me to the best architecture in Detroit. Then he ended up with Rem Coolhouse in Rotterdam. Wow. And then he landed this job with SOM in Chicago. So I've been able to engage even further. And when I left CBC, I wanted to do something different. So yeah. I, th I, I went to, to Jay, uh, who you might know, Jason Chan, uh, and uh, proposed to him uh, the, the idea of doing a podcast. And he was totally in. I've got six episodes up now. So that was my path to it. It was just 
you know, a lifelong interest that I could finally act on. Um, I have maybe uh, a lead for you. Sure. You know, I, I love the prairies as well. And I came across, okay, they're on Twitter. There's some guy, he's based out of Illinois, and he just does like Midwest architecture posts. And he'll post like four images of a building. In May or June, he went into Canada and was just doing posts of buildings in Canada. And he posted a chapel in Silton, Saskatchewan by Clifford Weems. Anyway, I saw it. I messaged them. I said, give me all the information you have about it. I need to visit this place. And I, okay. I did actually visiting um, this okay. summer. I'm expecting it to be, you know, I, I saw, uh, I was reading up on articles that it was yeah. about Part, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. but it's very much there and it is i i can tell you it is a masterpiece hidden in saskatchewan on just like the side of a valley it is beautiful yeah. so this is clifford weens in silton saskatchewan yeah yeah it's called our lady of the lake chapel so i took some photos oh, and okay. open air chapel oh interesting and and very modern and beautiful and uh, like I want to assist in getting heritage status for the building, and I would be happy right. to help. Tom Fougere of Winnipeg, soon to be of Montreal, watch for his soon to be launched, but not yet named, architectural practice. I will be following up on Tom's story idea about his wish for us to care more deeply about Clifford Weens and his architecture, particularly his chapel, the Our Lady of the Lake Chapel in Silton, Saskatchewan. Tom wants to lead an effort to restore this deteriorating architectural gem in Silton. Clifford Weens died at the age of 93 in January of 2020. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify and on the radio, UMFM Radio 101.5 FM. You can find us on Twitter at Prairie D Lab. Special thanks for help on today's episode from U of M professor Jason Chan. For Prairie Design Lab, I'm your host, producer, and writer, Terry McLeod.